I know in this community, like in many communities, it isn't the only one, but like in this community, we often have our rhythms orchestrated to us by the academic calendar, whether that's in the elementary schools and middle schools and high schools or with our universities and seminaries. And so this is, in a way, our new year. That's kind of where we are. And if you're looking for a passage of Scripture to memorize as you walk into the first portions of what is, for many of you at least, a new year, this would be a good one. It has a condensation, not only of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel of Jesus Christ and its implications for how we live <laughs> right there in a very dense passage. It's beautiful. Uh, what makes me nervous is, you know, prayerfully chose this passage quite some time ago uh, for today and wrote the sermon almost completely uh, before the week began. And events of this week then hit, and I thought, oh my goodness, Lord, I hope that you don't feel that I have handpicked this because of what happened in some of your lives this week. It may seem that way just when the text was read. I didn't do that. But maybe God did. Just maybe. Uh, but let me uh, just start uh, as a sort of an entree into what this uh, text is saying by starting with something pretty familiar to us, a very familiar phrase. It is what it is. Have you said that phrase recently? Have you heard that phrase recently? It is what it is. It's a way of recognizing a reality we don't like that we don't think is going to change. Well, it just is what it is. We almost say it sometimes like it's one word. It is what it is. And move on. A 40-something-year-old man woke up um, very early in this year the same way he'd woken up the last five days in a row with a splitting headache. He cursed the alarm clock, slapped it, stumbled into the bathroom, knocked over the jar of ibuprofen, fisted those four red pills, shoved them into his face, and guzzled them down with last night's leftover water glass. A rushed shower, kind of sloshing cup of coffee. He gingerly closed that car door, wincing against his hangover, and started his drive to work. He wasn't even out of his driveway before the feelings, those old familiar feelings began to wash over him again because he was heading to a job he hates, to work with people he can't stand, to try to accomplish something he doesn't even believe matters anymore. And he heard those words come out of his mouth. Well, just is what it is. And checked the clock to make sure he'd at least be on time. Not much later the same day, a young lady, 20-something-year-old woman, was compulsively checking her texts just outside in the, uh, the coffee shop, sitting at a table, waiting on her friend to show up. She'd been checking her texts compulsively for the last week and a half, hoping that guy would finally text. 
as she went through all of her messages that she had to reply to, her mom and her friends, but no guy. The person who had been trying to mentor her into a new way of life finally showed up and sat down, and she shared it with that mentor this way. She said, well, I guess he got what he wanted. Guys are just that way, you know. It is what it is. And then confessed her fourth one-night stand in the last 12 months and the emptiness and brokenness it was leaving her with. It is what it is, we say. Whether it's after a parent has just exploded at their kid again and they keep trying to stop doing that, but the voice was raised, the temples were throbbing, the face was red, and they can look backward on that moment, but it can't be rewound Or it's the argument between the spouse and the other spouse that got heated and names were called and words were used and wounds were left. Or it's that quiet moment in front of a blue screen with images that stay in your mind that you wish would go away, but you can't seem to scratch them off of the back screen of your mind even after you've walked away. There is an isness, really, isn't there, to the brokenness that's in our world. In a lot of ways, it is what it is, is a phrase that really works because it just is. It is, and it's there. And the brokenness is real, and sometimes it's not just individual things. Those individual things add up into communal things. Those communal things add up into systems things. Those system things add up into societal things. Some of you might have even heard your parent tell you when you were growing up, don't punch the meat grinder, son. Doesn't hurt the meat grinder. It only hurts you. That's a common metaphor for people of color in our country today. Sometimes the brokenness of our world creates a whole machine that keeps churning out brokenness, and it feels like the more you try to face the brokenness, the more you try to fix the brokenness, the more broken you become. The Bible calls that sin. That's not a word our culture uses very much. It's not a word we even like saying in church much, I think, anymore. I don't hear it very often. Honestly, I listen to a lot of preaching, by the way. It's kind of what I do. A lot of preaching. And sin isn't always the most common word. And yet it is there. It just is. And politicians are now batting that phrase back and forth across the political net at one another. And we're saying it all around everywhere. It is what it is. It is what it is. And we just resign to it. It's part of why I love this passage in Titus. Because Paul, in Titus chapter 3, and by the way, if you have your Bibles turned there, it's after all the T's. Uh, it's, I think it's First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy. Sometimes I get those backwards. I just remember that it's past the T's. I go all the way to the last T. It's Titus, the back of your Bible. Titus chapter three. Paul is naming this brokenness, and he is saying, in a way, it is what it is. But he doesn't just leave us there. He has more to say. And I also love, as we read that together ourselves, that Paul doesn't just name brokenness out there and name brokenness in those people and talk about brokenness in that place. He owns it and names it not just for himself, but for us. That's why we read it together, if you noticed. Look back at that verse. It starts this way. For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, and you heard the rest of it read. This is Paul speaking, the architect of the Christian church, the great theologian of the founding of the Gentile church. This is the guy who's planting churches all over the known world at the time. And he wasn't talking about some time period when he wasn't trying to follow God. That's the most amazing thing to me. Paul never had that period in his life. He grew up in a religious community. He grew up attending services and worshiping and praising God. He memorized scripture backwards and forwards. He crossed two different international boundaries to go to Jerusalem just to study with the best theologian of the day. And he's saying this. And it wasn't like it was an academic pursuit for him. I know he was trained in rhetoric. I know he was kind of an elite, but he was passionately pursuing this stuff. There might not have been a more passionate pursuer of God than Paul in his day. And at the very moment when he was living that way, Paul is saying, at that time, we were foolish, disobedient, led astray. Let me give you some just summary words of what I think this passage is saying about the isness and brokenness that's in us that Paul is saying. There's four or five of them that I hope will be a little more familiar sometimes in the other words. But let me just give you one that I think is the first one, unaware. Paul says, we too ourselves were foolish. Once foolish, that's the first one. We'll just walk through them. Each word really, by the way, is kind of worthy of a whole sermon. But we too ourselves were unaware. The word here that's used for foolishness means to be unaware of the circumstances that you're in or unaware of the context in which you're acting, or unaware of the consequences of the acts you're about to take. Those are three pretty important things to think about when you just think about the meaning of the word. If you're unaware of the circumstances that you're in, you might do something that was fine in some other circumstance, but it's not fine right now. If you're unaware of the context you're in, you might do something that makes sense to you, but the context doesn't make it make sense. And if you're unaware of the consequences of your actions that are gonna spill out after you've done something, you might think it'll be okay. It'll be just fine. This is no big deal until after it's done and you realize it was foolish. And Paul is saying, that was me. That was us. We too were once unaware and even unaware that we were unaware, which is a great warning, isn't it, for the church? While Paul was on his way to publicly attack people who were following God, God knocked him off his horse. Let me say that again. While Paul was on his way to publicly attack people who were following God, God had to knock him off his horse. I'll leave that there for you to contemplate. But sometimes we are absolutely unaware. And God wants to wake us up. When I have two teenagers in my home now, and uh, I, I love them dearly. They usually wake themselves up with great discipline and diligence. I'm actually amazed by them. I was not as disciplined as they are when I was their age. But on the weekend, sometimes we tell them even not to set their alarm, but there might be something when they sleep a little bit late that they'd otherwise miss. 
And when, when that's happening, I will sometimes go up to wake them up. I have a typical pattern that I follow, right? So if they need to wake up sooner, they're going to miss something. First thing I do is I open the door. I just simply open the door real quietly, you know, like this way, just in case I shouldn't be in there. Just kind of open the door sideways and leave it open and let the sound of the house try to wake them up. If that doesn't work and I don't hear any stirring, I'll kind of sneak in quietly, go up and slowly open the blinds, let a little bit of that soft morning light come in, kick in the circadian rhythm, jumpstart the body, right? If that doesn't work, I'll quietly sneak up and put my hand gently on the shoulder. If the pressure doesn't do anything, which often it doesn't, the coma is still going. And then I'll just quietly, very nicely, because I don't want to face the fire-breathing dragon, say, honey, Time to wake up, honey. If that still doesn't work, I give a little shake, a soft shake. Can I just tell you something obvious? God is big. Have you noticed? Have you thought about that? God created all these billions of light years of universe that we're living in. God, God is big. We're small. When God gives us a very gentle shake to him, it may seem like quite a big deal to us. I don't know what you come in today with. I don't know what your life has been like. I don't know what you walked into your living room experiencing at home. But if your life has been being shaken and it seems somewhat crazy and overwhelming and you're wondering why, why me, why now? Why are you shaking things this way? It's not because God is angry or judgmental. He loves you. He's trying perhaps, perhaps, I don't know your life, perhaps to wake you up. Perhaps there's something you're going to miss if you don't open your eyes to what you're unaware of. Perhaps he's been trying to give you other ways. You haven't heard them. You haven't seen them. You haven't felt the pressure of his gentle hand. If you're shaken, don't assume it's the judgment of God. It might be the grace of God in a strange way. When Paul says we were foolish, the next word is that we were disobedient. This word in Titus, disobedient. Uh, I'm just going to translate it some way for you. It's called uh, unconvinced. Uh, the, the root of this word is that we were unconvinced or unbelieving, therefore disobedient, when you understand its meaning. It's not that we're just holding our hand up at the sky and saying, God, I know what is right. and I'm not going to do it anyway. We do that sometimes, right? Paul's not talking about that here. He's saying, no, I was unconvinced. I didn't believe. I didn't know, and because I was unconvinced, I was disobedient and did not do what God wanted me to do. You know, that's true of us even in the church, right? Even in those who say we're following Christ, Paul at the time didn't know Christ was the resurrected Lord, had to be confronted by him, had to be knocked off his horse and then blinded to, to show him just how blind he was. But even when we're following Christ, we can be disobedient unintentionally because we're unconvinced that what someone is telling us is the best way is the best way. I mean, give you just a simple example, fidelity, faithfulness. You know, the dividing line on the divorce statistics, forgive me for touching on something that I know is painful for many, but it is. And so we need to talk about it at some point. The dividing line 
on the divorce statistics is not whether or not you say you're a Christian. If you say you're a Christian or you say you're not a Christian, it's about the same statistic, just minor differences. Minor, minor. The dividing line is whether or not you're living according to God's way prior to marriage. Promiscuity before marriage rapidly increases the divorce rate in marriage. It's not that God can't redeem that and restore it and prevent that from happening for you. It's not that God doesn't want to make something beautiful come out of your life if that's occurred for you. I'm not standing in judgment of you, trust me. I too was once disobedient, unaware, unconvinced. But God does want to wake us up and say, there's a reason. There are consequences. There are directions you can head in your life that are not best for you. God is not vindictive. He's not restrictive. He's not, he's not punitive. He's not grumpy. He's not greedy. He, he's not trying to keep great things from us. He's actually trying in his commands to give us good things that we can trust are good. Paths, scripture says, that we can run in because we can trust them. They're worthwhile. They're good. They're fulfilling. They're beautiful. And that's just one example of God's ways. There are many. But we're not always convinced, are we? And because of that, when we're unaware and unconvinced, we often become pretty unclear in how to live our lives. Titus says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Titus 3.3, led astray. The word led astray means to wander without a guide so that you lose your way and stumble into error. That's straight out of the lexicon. Don't even have to translate it. To wander without a guide so that we lose our way and stumble into error. It's about 15 years ago now, I was with a backpacking friend of mine and we left on a weekend in the morning to go hike around in the state park. We got there, I think like 11 o'clock in the morning to, to kind of tackle some trails. That was one of the things we'd love to do at that point in time. And by, by about, I don't know, uh, four or five in the afternoon, we'd done about 14 miles. Sweat was dripping down as we were going up and down, a lot of elevation change. We were ready to head back to the car. We'd had a great day. But when we looked at that little map they give you in the state park, you know, those aren't that great map. Those aren't those great of maps. You know, just sort of squiggly lines drawn in a blank space. And they tell you about how far it's supposed to be, you know. But we had a compass and we could tell that the car was pretty much east. The trail was heading away from where the car was before it would head back. And we thought, you know, the trails in state parks, I've been to places like this, they actually add miles just to give you a longer trail. Sometimes you go up and down a hill, up and down a hill for no reason. You find out later, you realize you're just doing loops and you do it for no good reason. And so we thought to ourselves, look, I got a compass, that way's east, the car's that way, Here, the, car, the trail's going that way, let's just head to the car. We'll go one mile instead of four or five, I'm done. We started heading off the trail and walked down this hill that went into a pine forest and the pine forest got into a steeper hill and the, the straw underneath, the, the pine needles underneath were kind of slippery. We're running, going faster and faster and faster because weight on our backs and we're building up momentum. At first, we're having fun, you know, jumping over logs and ducking under branches and laughing and, and, and getting faster and faster, though it started to get out of control to the point where it was almost too fast to duck the branches, almost too fast to jump over the logs. I don't remember whether it was me or my friend, but one of us just called out, whoa, 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 whoa. And we both started trying to slow down. Eventually, I had to lay back and just slide for a while to stop this run. 
And I'm so glad we did, because about 10 yards later, we came up to what looked like just the end of our horizon. The hill was going to keep going down. We'd keep walking down, down, down to the car. And we realized that horizon was a cliff, a straight drop-off of at least a 50-foot rocky gorge. And there we are facing a dead end. And still, while facing a dead end, you know the dumb conversation we had? Well, I wonder if we maybe go around a little bit this way. What if we climb? Could we climb? You think we could climb that? There's only one good way back. We had to turn around and walk all the way back up that stinking steep hill, taking five or six times as long and a lot more work to get out of what we had got ourselves into. And we had a compass. We had a map. We didn't have anybody who'd been that way before. We didn't have anybody who knew that park. We didn't have anybody who knew that terrain to say, no, 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 you don't understand. There's cliffs in here. There's drop-offs here. If we're going around, there's a good reason we're going around. And we went our own way. After all, we're Americans, right? So we do. I did it my way. We sing every year where the ball's dropping. Sometimes, without meaning to, because we're unaware of what's going on or the context we're in, and we're unconvinced that the established path is necessarily the best way for us. We get led astray by our own thinking, our own desires, our own shortcuts. We don't think it's gonna be that big of a deal. And when we find ourselves going too far, too fast, too long to a place we never wanted to end up in, there's really only one good way back. Turn all the way around and walk back up. And it might take you four or five, six times as long to get out of what you got yourself into, but that's called repentance. And without repentance, you can just keep saying it is what it is because it will keep being what it has always been. We were unaware, we were unconvinced, we were unclear, we were unsatisfied. The next one, number four, we were unsatisfied. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Look at this next phrase. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. I just want to ask, did, did Paul live in the United States of America? I mean, is he describing us, right? Slaves to various passions and pleasure. Some people read the Old Testament and they say, I don't even know how to apply this. I read the Old Testament and I say, you know what? Our idols don't look like they're idols, but there's one on every single corner of our culture. That's what we spoke about with other gods that we've given ourselves over to. When we pursue pleasures because we're unsatisfied with what we already have, when we seek to experience pleasures and more intense pleasures, it ends up in a cycle. The more you have, the more you want. The more you receive, the more you long for. When you try to have an experience of pleasure in empty things, it will lead to an empty life. What we should be doing is taking pleasure in meaningful things, looking backward, not seeking pleasure in empty things, looking forward. But we are in our culture increasingly enslaved to passions of all kinds, pleasures of all 
kinds. It's not just the alcoholic I mentioned at the beginning of today who's numbing himself. Whether it's um, pornography or gambling or video games or sports or you fill it in, there are plenty of ways that we can numb ourselves. And we're still not satisfied. I mean, I <laughs> think about this. If my great-grandfather would ride in the car I ride in, my, my car, it's not that fancy of a car, but if he rode in my car, forget my great-grandfather, my grandfather who's passed away already. If he rode in my car, what he would think? <laughs> you know, well, you can, you got a TV in here that shows you what's back there? What is that thing? You don't even have to, it beeps at you when you don't know how to drive? <laughs> what? what is this? It beeps to tell you you're dumb? That's fantastic. You don't have to go around and lock every door. What's this thing you keep doing? What's that beeping noise? Things that they never had, we get standard. What's that blowing on my face? What's going on? <laughs> I can see him freaking out. And still we're not happy. You know, if I just had those heated seats. Indiana's so cold. I need, if I had heated seats, then I, I've got a moonroof. I'd like a sunroof. If I, I know the moonroof's not, but if I had a sunroof. We're not satisfied in our culture. And I know some of you, you're saying, well, you know, none of those things are what I'm thinking about. But at the very front end of your life, you're already thinking about how you can get as much pleasure out of your life as possible. And it's already starting for you. I got last year's phone. I wish I could get this year's phone. I got the iWatch. I wish I could have the AirPods. I got the AirPods. I wish I could get the Pro. And that won't make us happy. Have you heard about this actor? What's her name? Lori Laughlin, is that right? Uh, from When Calls the Heart. Some of you just loved that Canadian Mountie Jack. A few of you, any Canadian Mountie Jack lovers? I don't know if you've heard about this actress, but she, uh, she was the one who was caught up in this scandal about paying for her kids to get into college. And she just received her sentencing this week. And the judge said something very interesting to her. She said, he said, you stand before me right now as a very successful professional actor with a long-standing marriage with more money than you could ever hope to have. And yet you have this inexplicable desire for more. Why? And now you are a convicted felon. You have everything this culture is promising you and more, and you are not satisfied. You still want more. Why? None of that's ever going to satisfy. It never will. We were unaware, unconvinced, unclear, unsatisfied, and five, we were unforgiven and unforgiving. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Unforgiven and unforgiving. I think part of the reason that the longer we're with people, the more we dislike them. Don't look at somebody right now. It's not, this is not the moment to look right at somebody. I mean, think about COVID-19, right? We started to see this. Yes, we're, tra we're trapped in this one little tiny space with these people. If I have to look at these people one more day, please wear the mask. The mask will help. I know it's just us. Wear the mask. 
The longer we're with the same people, sometimes the less we like each other. Why? Here's, a, here's an easy answer, I think. You see, when you sin, it is shocking. When I sin, it's understandable. Am I right? When we get into an argument, I want to tell somebody else, what you did wrong was a nine. And then they start talking about what I did wrong, and I'm going to say, yeah, but that was a two. Let's stay focused on your nine. Mine was a two. And they're saying, no, your two? No, 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 no. That's 11, like 11.5. Is there 11.5 on the Richter scale? Because you're like an earthquake of wrong. And then that cycles, right? And we see others' wrongs as worse than our wrongs, and our wrongs as less than their wrongs. We're comparing the wrong direction. Because the grace of God wants to continually remind us the comparison is not with other people. The comparison is with God. And when we remember how much we've been forgiven, for we too were once disobedient, foolish, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures. We too were once completely unaware and unconvinced last week of how unconvinced and unaware we were. When we realize the distance between us and God is so great, it makes the distance between us and others so small. We're not that different, really, are we? If you go into a kitchen where you make food sometime this week, do this, it'll be fun. Go up to the sink where all the dishes are cleaned. You know that face plate that's just underneath the sink? It's like, kind of like a fake drawer. It's not really a drawer. You're looking for silverware, you pull on it, it doesn't go anywhere because it's just a fake drawer. It's supposed to make it look nicer. That face plate is pretty clean, probably. Can you see it in your eyes? It's pretty clean. It, run your hand on it, it's real smooth. But now turn your hand under like this and feel underneath. The underside of that faceplate in most kitchens is pretty gooey and sticky with leftover residue of weeks and weeks and months and months and years of years of things that haven't been cleaned. That's like feeling the soul for many Christians going to church. We keep our faces clean. But underneath the surface are these wounds and these bitternesses, these resentments, these angers that we've never worked through and forgiven. We've never let it go. And we're continuing to compare their nine with our two. The thing is, it is what it is, no matter how hard we try to change it. That's the problem. If you're thinking as you're listening to this, well, I'm, I'm, I need to work on being more aware. I need to be work, on, uh, work on being more convinced. I need to go on a spiritual journey and an intellectual journey, and I need to work on being more directed in my life. I need to work harder at spiritual direction. I need to get a counselor. I need to get a mentor. I need to get a friend. I need to, blah, blah, blah. And you're thinking about all the things you need to do to fix all of these things that I've been talking about. Let me just counsel you and say, please don't run down that anxious, striving, works righteousness path. There are things we can do that God will lead us to do, but you cannot work yourself out of sin. You cannot work your way out of brokenness. You cannot work your way into the amazing grace of God. It always comes as a gift. That's just what it is. And Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
That's just really the straight up gospel of God. That's nothing new. That's nothing fantastic. And yet we don't live by that always, do we? If I just tried a little harder, I'm not convinced of this thing. If I just thought a little more, read a little more, struggled a little more, <laughs> it's time to let go of that. Here's the good news. When amazing grace comes in, life no longer is what it is because we no longer are who we are. It's not just changing what we do that needs to happen. We have to let God change who we are, our deepest level of identity, our deepest rootedness in how we relate so that we are not just people who get grace. We are people who are all the way down made of grace. We aren't just people who think about grace, talk about grace, preach about grace. We're people who have experienced it at such a deep level that it's overflowing from us, bump us and grace comes out, kick us and grace spills over. Punch us and grace spurts out. That's what amazing grace can do. Let me just talk about a few of the things the passage says it will do for us in a pretty quick way. What grace does for us. First of all, God wants us to be washed. Didn't you love that picture of the pitcher pouring water and you could hear the water pouring out as he cleanses us in the reading of scripture. A reminder of baptism, which is a reminder of what God does through his spirit, washed, clean and brand new. If you walked into church today feeling absolutely dirty, and some of you did, though you won't show it, I know, you don't have to leave that way. If you walked into your living room today to watch a screen feeling filthy, maybe not coming here because of how filthy you feel. You don't have to keep living that way. Second, renewed. God doesn't just want to wash us and leave a little bit of the ring of the stain left. He wants to give us a complete change for the better. The washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. Washed, renewed, justified. God wants to make it so that it's just as if we never sinned. That's what justification means. You can't get rid of consequences of sin, but in terms of your relationship with God, it can be a guilt-free life. You don't have to keep carrying a backpack of shame from things you did 15, 20, 30 years ago. You don't have to keep carrying those. God doesn't want you to keep carrying those. He's not asking you to emotionally whip yourself the rest of your life to make up for the things you've done. And he's not asking me to do that either. Praise God. Washed, renewed, justified, and this is the greatest of all to me, adopted. With the promise of an infinite inheritance. Here's the verse. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God wants to adopt us. We're not born as God's children. Do you realize that? You're born as God's creature. And when you accept Jesus Christ into your life, he chooses to adopt you. You are not an obligation. You are not a duty. You are not an afterthought. You're the greatest joy of his existence. You're his child, and he chooses you, wants you, and sets before you an eternity that is more infinitely satisfying than anything you could ever describe or ever even imagine. This life that you are now experiencing is just this. It's just a 
snap. It goes by so fast. It's a blink. What seems like it's lasting so long right now, when we get into eternity, we're going to wake up like we're waking up from a bad dream in a cheap hotel. That's what one author calls it. I love that picture. I just woke up like a, like a bad dream from a cheap hotel. Well, glad that's over. Let's pack up and get out of that. That's what this life is. It is a on the screen of infinite eternity with glorious presence of God's amazing grace, rejoicing and worshiping with him with things we can't even describe how good they are. Our language breaks. But the reason we get this grace, I wanna talk about one other thing and we'll be done. Augustine of Hippo put it this way. Grace is given not because we uh, have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them so that we might become people of grace. Let me put it another way. We're not focusing on amazing grace today just so that we can feel it. We're focusing on amazing grace so that we can give it. I just want to read the first part of this passage that some of you students of the Bible very astutely noticed that I left out. It just felt too close to home to start the message with because this is what God is asking us to be, and the rest of the passage is how we do it. Titus 3.1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do every good work, to speak evil of no one, no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Why? Because we too were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. The grace of God is the way we live God's way. Unless you are daily, hourly experiencing the gap between you and God and the unmerited grace of God that brings that gap down to nothing daily, hourly. You won't be so overwhelmed with the goodness of God's grace that you're able to extend it to others again and again and again, 77 times, stinking seven times. Well, that's enough for one morning, I believe. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to guide you through a time of prayer and reflection. I don't know where you are spiritually. I don't know where you are with God. Only God knows. I've been preaching this message as if I was preaching it to me. That usually works for me. If I preach to me, it seems to work for others. And I do believe the Holy Spirit translates with perfect precision. Some of you, whether you're in your living room right now, sitting on a couch, sipping a cup of coffee, or you're sitting here in this space right now in the pew, you came into this service not knowing why you were here. Maybe even frustrated that you were here. But something's changed. Something's shifted. And right now, something's stirring right down in the center of your body. And you don't know why that's not me. I can't make that happen. That's the Lord. And if you are far from God today, he's saying, I'm waking you up because I want you to be near me. I don't want you to miss me. I'm tired of missing you. If that's you today, whether you're at home or here, you can make that seat that you're in an altar. 
make it your own personal space of prayer. In your own heart and mind, pray something like this to the Lord. Lord, I'm so sorry for the way I've been living. I've been far from you. I know right now you're near to me. Don't leave me. Forgive me for the sins I've committed. Cleanse them, wash them, make them new. Make me new. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the master of my life and I haven't been living that way. I give my life to you right now. From here on, I ask you to put your spirit in me to be my guide. I hope you'll talk to someone about that today. If you did pray that prayer, talk to someone near you in your pew, talk to someone in your home, someone who you believe is a mature disciple. Email us, reach out to us. I'd love to hear you from you. I'm easy to find. Dave Ward, Indiana Wesleyan, the email's public. I'd be happy to hear from you. But for all of us here, I want you to keep praying and ask the Lord this question. Lord, is there any part of my life in which I am not really demonstrating amazing grace to others? People have rubbed into me, maybe even in this last week, and instead of being like natural grass, I'm more like AstroTurf. They, they have friction with me, it burns them. I've burned some people, and Lord, I, I know that I'm not fully a person of grace. Confess that to the Lord. Ask him to help you experience and feel and sense his grace anew today, even for that, so that you might extend it to others. And now let me give you some things to talk about now that we're done praying. You can open your eyes if you want. Um, on the screen are some discussion questions as you go to small groups, as you meet in your homes to maybe sit a little bit longer and talk around the circle that you're in. These are some questions you can use. Take a screenshot of them if you want. I think they're online for us. But on the screen, in what areas of life have you been tempted to simply say it is what it is and give up hope for change? What have you given up on? What are you sending the shrug emoji for? Number two, which of the unword, unwords is God's spirit particularly speaking to you about today? Unaware, unconvinced, unclear, unsatisfied, unforgiven, unforgiving. And what habits of grace could you practice to allow God space, not to work your way into a better life, but to give God room to work on you? And third, what does it look like for our family, for our small group, for our community, for our dorm room, for our discipleship group, whatever, to be more of a model of God's amazing grace to others in concrete ways. And as you talk about that, I'd love if you'd take specific time for each of these categories of people. Those who don't know Christ, please talk about that. It's not just for us. This meeting isn't for us, really. To those going through a season of need, there are plenty of them right now, if you're not aware. And the people who are left out or ignored. Talk about those things and see what God does among you. I think you might be amazed. For me, the grace of God is the most amazing thing I've ever tasted or received. It's the most satisfying food I've ever had.